You're listening to the Young Baptist Podcast, a show that exists to call believers to committed faithfulness to God's Word, to equip Christians by answering the tough questions that need to be asked, and to challenge churches on everything that distracts us from the beauty and glory of Christ. Now, here's your hosts, Clay Maynard and Josh Johnson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. My name is Clay Maynard, and I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Johnson. We are two guys committed to the centrality of the gospel, and we want to see our brothers and sisters be captivated all over again by the beauty and glory of Christ. Josh, how's it going, man? It's going good, Clay. It's been a good day. How about you? I've had a pretty decent day. I've, I've, I've had a busy day. Yeah. It's good busy. Most of it was good busy. Sure. But it did mean I didn't get to swipe on Facebook nearly as much as I normally like to. Ah, yes. Good old Facebook. <laughs> I'm actually on Facebook right now as we speak. Really? Yeah. I, I actually prefer Instagram and Twitter to Facebook. I would say I prefer Instagram to Twitter and Facebook. But if I could just throw them all in the trash, I would. <laughs> <laughs> I I think they're useful, but I don't think we're possibly mature enough to handle them. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah, that's that's definitely fair, especially <laughs> in my case. <laughs> no, I was talking about me, but I don't know. I you know, Josh, with every technology that's come down the pike, like with think about the automobile. Henry Ford develops this transformational vehicle and and, right. and social media, the technology generation, social media is a transformational vehicle. Arguably more than the automobile, if that can, if that's even possible. Oh, certainly. And so you have this, think about the automobile for a second. Henry Ford makes it and the, the experts break it down and learn to function it and learn to operate it and learn to use it. And then they start to uh, send it out into the world and the world starts to adopt it and the adults handle it first. Right. And then they learn it. And then our, our, our economy starts to shape to it. The adults learn how to handle it responsibly. We regulate it. We do all of these things. And then we decide, hmm, when should our children have the keys to this beast? Yeah, now social media is the complete opposite. Yeah, and so then at some point we decide, hey, child, you are old enough to responsibly understand this, or at least we think you might be getting there. And so we're going to start to give you some freedom. Even then, you don't stay out all night. They're not your keys. It's not your car, right? And we, and we start to build all these safeguards in. Social media went the exact opposite. Oh, yeah. We strap, it's the equivalent of getting Henry Ford letting the, 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 the vehicle off the first, you know, assembly line and us strapping toddlers and middle schoolers into it and just handing them keys. No regulation. No understanding of the long-term effects. And I, I don't know if it was because it was technology. We just thought, oh, it's just a phone. It's just a tablet. Like what, what harm could it really do? Not realizing the mental cost or the oh, yeah. social cost or the emotional and spiritual cost of all of this. It's a, it's a complete nightmare when you really dig into some of the statistics. If you've ever, I don't know if you have, but if you've ever watched the documentary, The Social Dilemma. I want to, I have not. It's very interesting. And they give a statistic in there about uh, teenage girls like from the age 13 to 17. Oh, I've, I've heard some of this. Where before like 2008 or whenever social media started to catch on, uh, from before then to today, like 2008 to today, suicide rates in that age range 
went up by like 450%. It's absolutely insane. And they're saying a lot of that is attributed to the fact that the, people are basically, if you can say it this way, doom scrolling on social media and seeing everyone else's front stage and they're looking at their behind the scenes and thinking, oh, my life is miserable. Yep. I'm not as pretty as everyone else. I'm not as athletic as everyone else, blah, blah. And it's it's having a serious mental uh, toll on all these people. Josh, and that doesn't even, that's one element. This doesn't even touch the fact that adults are, we really haven't figured out how to use it either. No. And the We've, thing is, it, the, social the game cost, changes every, like every week. Yeah. And the social cost of getting all of our information in these places, of replacing uh, what used to be real conversations with people, with social media conversations, of caring about everything in the world at once so that it feels impossible to, to actually affect anything, of, of, of trying to deal with, with or, 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 or connect to hundreds of people. You can't possibly truly care in a personal way about hundreds of people. And so the social cost, we, we still have not figured out how, how big this thing is yet, even the adults. Well, it's amazing how it was supposed to bring everyone together. And now what is it known for? It's known for the, the factions uh, and the divisions that it yes. has caused. And it's, it's created a, a division in an individual person. Mo there are people who live their life one way on social media and totally different outside of it. Yep. And you can see that by some of the comments people will make. Like, you would never say that to somebody's face, but you're a keyboard warrior and you can just spit yep. these things out and it just leads to this duplicity of life that is so unhealthy. Yeah. I'm it's deleting so the scary. apps as we speak. Do it. I do it. <laughs> yeah. And the neat thing about social media is it really comes down to each individual's choice on how they want to use it. What a transition. Wow, Josh. <laughs> Which brings us to individual soul liberty. I have to give uh, Jared Wilson credit on the Art of Pastoring podcast. His transitions are just seamless. So that's <laughs> where I learned everything that I know about transitions. Shout out, Jared Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> so on this episode, we'll continue our series on the Baptist distinctives. Um, we're going to review really fast so we can kind of make sure we're all on the same page. First is biblical authority. Then you have autonomy of the local church. Next is the priesthood of all believers. And then last episode, we talked about two ordinances being baptism and the Lord's Supper. And today we're going to continue the acrostic with the letter I, which stands for individual soul liberty. Uh, some have also called this soul competence. And a very, very simple definition of individual soul liberty is God is the Lord of the conscious and every person is individually responsible to God. Every person is to be fully persuaded in his own mind and therefore responsible to give an account to God individually. Yeah, Josh, God, God is the Lord of the conscience, uh, which means no man, no group, no institution uh, is to Lord over your conscience. Uh, it's your right at, under God as one made in his image to make decisions about faith for yourself without coercion, without manipulation, without force. Uh, you have the right to believe uh, if something's, to believe anything or to believe not, you know, e even if it's right, if it's, it, you get to choose whether or not you believe it if it's not in the Bible. If there's not scripture for it, there might be something out there that's right, but you get to choose whether or not you're going to believe it. That's what freedom of conscience is. Well, and would you say that even if it's in the Bible, you have the freedom of conscience to reject that? Yes, you have the freedom to. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Uh, I just want to, the reason I'm saying that is because the, the belief in individual soul liberty is not an encouragement to not believe the Bible. Right, right. It's more an encouragement to exercise freedom where the Bible is silent. It's an, it's an encouragement that Christians, but yes, you're correct that even if you are rejecting faith altogether, the Baptist belief in individual soul liberty, and it's not Baptist exclusively, although we are some of the oldest you know, denomination, we're one of the oldest denominations to actually promote this. Uh, some of the earliest proponents of it were Baptist. Um, but what they believe is that, is that you can believe whatever you choose. Um, and so that's, that's an important thing, that your faith relationship is between you and God. Now, that's what freedom of conscience means. Uh, the ability to, 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 when you have the, the power to manipulate people to believe things that aren't in the Bible, um, just because you're sure they're true, you know, because I'm convinced of it. I'm, I'm sure that this is the right way, even though it's not in the Bible. I don't have scripture for it, but I'm sure that it's right. The problem is, is when I'm wrong, mm. because I don't have Bible behind me, I'm making people believe things that aren't true and I'm fallible. I, I don't, I should never wield that kind of authority. And that's why we believe in soul freedom. The London Baptist Confession of 1689 in chapter number 21 in section two says this, God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it, so that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Josh, can I, I I'm going to stop you right there. It says there that, it's free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to God's word or not contained in it. Right. So in other words, if it's absent from the pages of scripture, you are free from the doctrines of men. That's such a, that's a great, this is a great quote from 1689. I like a lot of 1689. This is one of my favorite things I've ever read from it. Um, and then next it says to, to, to be forced to, to believe those doctrines and obey them out of conscience, outside of your conscience is not, it's not, he doesn't say, uh, it weakens your liberty. It makes it a little, it makes it a little harder. There's this, there's this tug of war going on. No, he says it, it destroy it. it destroys it. Yeah. it. This is to uh, betray liberty of conscience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also, because think of it, you're not, you're now not allowing yourself to reason through what is right and wrong. You're allowing yourself to be told. UI Mullins, he said in his, in two of his books, Baptist Beliefs and the Axioms of Religion, uh, he said in Baptist Beliefs, God alone is the Lord of the conscience. To him, men must give account and only to him. And then in the axioms of religion, he said the religious axiom then is that all souls have an equal right to direct access to God. Yeah, uh, Thomas Helwes, I love what he says about this. He wrote a, a book called A Short Declaration of the Mystery of Iniquity, which I've decided. That's a super Baptist. If name. I ever... <laughs> If I ever write a book, because Thomas Helwes might have been the first Baptist, right? He was some of the one of the original people to say a lot of the things well, uh, that apart Baptists, from the apostles. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, he was one of the first guys to really start saying a lot of the things that Baptists have believed, and he's in the early 1600s. Um, but I've decided, Josh, if I ever write any books when I get to heaven, I'm just going to let Thomas Helwes rename my books. Okay, that sounds good. Because listen to this title: "A Short Declaration of the Mystery of Iniquity." But in it, he says this. Quote, we do freely profess that our Lord, the King, has no more power over their conscience than we do. That is none at all. Christ is King alone. 
He goes on to say later, men's religion to God is between God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and man. Let them be heretics. We cannot possibly fathom today how controversial this was. The state church ran religion. Mm -hmm. You did not operate outside the state. We separation of church and state is so obvious to us today. They didn't have that then. This, this was just extreme. Um, and what's notable about this is that very few people believed this held this radical idea of soul, individual soul liberty. But for hell is, it was from his conviction that an earthly sword, he quote, quote, this is a quote too, an earthly sword is ordained of God only for an earthly power and a spiritual sword for a spiritual power. Um, he actually sent a copy of his book to James I, the monarch, with a handwritten note penned in the flyleaf of the book, uh, in which he boldly tells the king, um, recklessly even, this is the quote. This is his personal note to the king. So after he writes this book, he's going to pen a little note in the front. And this is what he says, quote, the king is a mortal man and not God. <laughs> Dear James. <laughs> Therefore hath no power over the immortal souls of his subjects to make laws and ordinances for them and to set spiritual lords over them. If the king have authority to make spiritual lords and laws, then he is an immortal God and not a mortal man. And then he promptly went to jail. Mm. <laughs> um, the early, those guys were accused of anarchy because they, they couldn't conceive of churches that were distinct and separate at that time from the state. So they were accused. They were, they were saying, if, if these guys believe this, then how can you control people's behavior? How can you tell them what they have to do? And Americans of all people, we should love this idea of individual soul liberty. I'm sure it's kind of honestly what has established freedom of religion in this country. Absolutely. This was the, this was the beginning of it. These ideas were the beginning of it. Now we know these principles are found in scripture, mm -hmm. but for, I mean, for centuries, this wasn't the case. You were persecuted if you believed this. I mean, look at Hellwiz. He goes to jail for, just for saying this, much less practicing it. Um, and so how could of all people, Josh, independent Baptists be the ones who drift from this? How could, how could Baptists at all not believe this? This is a distinctive. This is a big deal. It should, we should be the last people to be drifting sure. from this and, and seeking to control people. So that really leads us to the scriptural support for individual soul liberty. We're going to do something we haven't done on an episode yet. And we're actually going to read an entire chapter of scripture uh, Romans chapter number 14. And what yeah, we'll do is we'll, like, we'll read through this. And then if, you know, if you, we have thoughts, we're just going to interject as we go. Yeah, Josh, this is, Romans 14 is the seminal text for the belief of individual soul liberty. Paul lays it down in an indisputable way. That's right, Clay. So let's go ahead. We're going to jump in Romans 14, verse one. Here's what it says. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. All right, so Josh, what is he saying already? He's saying we should receive people, but not to doubtful disputations, particularly somebody he says is weak. Now we're going to talk about who is weak. He's going to get into that here in the chapter, but he's saying receive people, but don't receive people saying to yourself, oh, I'll fix them up. Just wait till I get them over here and I'll teach them all the things they should know. And I'll, and I'll, I'll lay my opinions on them. And I will show them, there's all kinds of things maybe the Bible doesn't say, but that they still need to know. I'm going to bring them in under my wing. I'm going to show them how to, everything they should do. He's saying, don't do that. Don't receive people that yeah, way. Don't bring them into that word disputations means judging. Yeah. Doubtful judgments. Yeah, uh, Doubtful, meaning you're not, we're not sure. There's a lot of opinions on this. 
it's not, it's not clear in God's word. It's doubtful. All right, let's continue reading. The Bible says, for one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So really, he's saying, if I want to be a vegetarian, you shouldn't judge me. Right, Clay? That, that is actually what he's saying. He's saying. <laughs> well, and we know he's talking about meats. Um, that meats was a big deal to them because yeah. some of them were eating meats that were offered to idols. You know, there was this process where they would, after a, a, a pagan ceremony, they would bring the meat that was used in the ceremony. They would offer this meat to the God, but of course the God's not real, so he didn't eat it. <laughs> and so then they would be like, well, let's sell the meat. It's still worth something. And they would sell it at a discount because it had been used in a ceremony. And some of the people in the churches thought, well, let's eat the, let's eat the meat. Um, it's still good meat. I can get it at a discount. Well, that was a big dispute among the early Christians, whether or not that should be eaten because it was used in a pagan ceremony. And, and so it was a doubtful disputation. Mm -hmm. It was something that one believes, he says it in verse two, one believeth. In other words, everybody doesn't agree, but one guy says, I can eat, I can eat this meat. Another who is weak, just eat the herbs. He says, I'd rather, I'd rather not, I'd rather be a vegetarian than eat that. I'm not eating that. Um, so these are two guys who disagree on this. One believes he can, one believes he shouldn't. And verse three says, not, don't let the one that eats. So you're the one with the freedom here. You're not weak in this area. You're not, you're not, your conscience is not weak toward this meat. You're strong enough to handle it and it doesn't wound you and it doesn't, um, it doesn't drive you to others to, 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 to do sin and nothing like that. But he says, if that's you, don't despise the one that doesn't eat. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's a danger with individual soul liberty. It's this idea that, well, I'm, what's your problem? I can do this. There's no scripture against it. You should do it too. Well, maybe he should, maybe he shouldn't. But that's for him to decide. That's a part of individual soul liberty. But then the rest of the verse goes on to say, let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. So the weaker brother also shouldn't say, well, <laughs> You know, I'm willing to go further in my Christian life than you are. I'm willing to be more separated than you. I'm willing to be more holy than you. He's saying, don't do that. Don't sit there and judge him. Why? For God hath received him. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to verse four, which says, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master, he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up for God is able to make him stand. To his master, he stands or falls. This is a doubtful disputation. This is not something clearly laid out in scripture. Again, we're not talking about sin issues. We're not talking about obvious, we're not talking about uh, the works of the flesh that Paul details. We're not talking about those things. We're talking about disputable things. He's saying, D the guy who does it, don't, don't shove it in the face of the person who won't, who doesn't think he should. But the person who won't, do not l judge people who won't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, he goes on, one man esteemeth one day above another, another man esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. That last line is so important. Yep. Do your research, read scripture, study scripture, and then ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. And then once you've made that call in your life, be fully persuaded about it. But don't, be don't constantly be disputing about it. Just be persuaded about it. Which I'd throw this in there. Being fully persuaded in your own mind does not imply a lack of teachability because sure you may, I mean, you may grow in an area or you may discover, yes. Oh, I was off the money on this one a little bit. Yeah. You, you mentioned growing Josh, you might just one day not have the same weakness as you have today. Yeah. You might need to abstain from something today that you don't need to abstain from in the future. You might 
not abstain from something now and over time realize you should. Um, and so he he goes on to say, he that regards the day regards it to the Lord. He that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, he eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. So he's saying you can do either one to the glory of God. One is not better than the other. One is not right while the other is wrong. These are doubtful things. You can inwardly believe something. The other one can inwardly believe something, which is what doubtful means. It means inwardly. You, you, you and your own self have this doubt. Uh, and he that, so some eat, some eat not to the Lord, they do it. And so he goes on to say, verse 10, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So he actually makes the point here, Josh, if I, my understanding of that verse, verse 10, his resolution to those questions is, don't you realize we're going to stand before Christ? He almost insinuates that it's a lack of trusting God that leads us to do this. In other words, I don't trust Christ to judge you well enough. I need to step in here and tell you what you need to know. So verse 12 says, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. This is the text verse, if you will, of the passage. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Uh, Verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Okay, so what is he pointing us to here? To charity. He's pointing us to esteem others better than ourselves, and say, what does my brother need from me? Is there something I can do to support, to uphold, to edify my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ? Verse 16, he says that if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, walk that now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. Okay, so you, you're okay with eating the meat. You're okay with doing things he's not. Don't let that be evil spoken of. You're enjoying your freedom in Christ, but don't, don't let your good be evil spoken of by, by rubbing that in somebody's face. And he says, verse 17, for this kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Boy, we could meditate on that just for a while, just that line right there. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Uh, verse 20, for meat destroys not the work of God. All God. things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. I think you got to go back to 19 though, because I think that's an important verse. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for oh, yeah. peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Yeah. Truthfully, at the end of the day, we also, like you said, charity is a super important part of all of this. And we need to follow after the things that make for peace to where we can edify one another. And then as you were going into there, verse 20, meat destroy, not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. Yeah, but it, so what does eating with offense mean, Josh? It means to eat in such a way that does not edify, edify your brother. Yeah. Verse 22, hast thou faith, have it to thyself before God. That's a great line. And then he says, happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. In other words, you can be happy by being able to engage in things that are allowable in your freedom in Christ. That can, you can be happy. He's saying happy is he. You don't condemn yourself in the thing that you allow. Mm-hmm. You can enjoy those things. But then it goes on to say, he that doubteth is damned if he eat because he eateth not of faith for whatsoever is not as faith is sin. So he wraps up this chapter beautifully by saying, what you do, you need to do in faith. So some people will, listening will, will undoubtedly, Josh, encounter things, areas of liberty where they say, should I watch this? Should I go to this place? 
Should I be in this environment? And the answer to that is sometimes you can go or you might not be, or you might, you maybe shouldn't go. In many cases, you probably would, would be okay. And, and, and what it boils down to is, is this belief that the thing there is the sin. Truthfully, that is not the case. Uh, it is the kingdom of God's not meat and drink. Jesus repeats this when he says to his disciples, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man. So it's not the thing in front of you that is necessarily sinful. It's what it brings out of you. You're the sinner, not the inanimate object. And so oftentimes we approach things with, is this item sinful? What do you do with it? What effect does it have on you? Well, and it would seem that the indication is if it, if it goes against your conscience, it's sin. don't do it because right. it's not faith. It's not a faith. Because the Holy Spirit will use your conscience to keep you away from things that would be dangerous for you. It doesn't mean it's dangerous for everyone. Right. It doesn't mean it's necessarily a sin in and of itself. It just means you shouldn't do it. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And we've gotten really away from the ministry of the Holy Spirit often in our teaching, Josh. We've, we've stopped telling people to trust the Holy Spirit. We've kind of decided that since we have this beautiful church and all of these Bible teachers, you can just come to us. You can borrow my conscience. Um, and that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that all every believer needs to be fully persuaded. Mm-hmm. You can't do that if you don't have a healthy relationship with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can constantly work on your conscience. And you might be convinced that certain things are wrong to do that other people don't agree with you on. Maybe it's just wrong for you. Maybe it's not wrong for them. Right. You know, and, and maybe it is wrong and you just have a weak, you just have a messed up conscience. All the more reason to be trusting the Holy Spirit, all the more reason to be reading God's word. But still, nobody else can do that for you. You need to constantly be reading the word and in prayer and sensitive to the Holy Spirit because that's what heals your conscience mm-hmm. over time. And so do, it, do what you do with faith. You know, should I watch this? Ask God what, what, what you should watch. I trust the Holy Spirit. I think most of our listeners, they're listening to this and they're saying, yeah, I think I should trust the, I think I should trust the Holy Spirit. You should. Uh, if, it's the, if it's Lord of the Rings, I'll go ahead and answer it for you. You should just watch it. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. So what are, the, what are the Baptist issues with individual soul liberty? Well, John Merton said it this way. He said, if the state tried to ensure religious conformity, it would only compel men to be hypocrites. Which, what's he saying? He's saying when you pressure people to do things, they don't actually change. They don't, it doesn't actually make them better Christians. Uh, and we should know this. this. This should be obvious, but it's often not. We're okay seeing that outward conformity sometimes. We, we accept that as marks of spirituality. But people don't change in a pressure cooker like that. Well, and most people, Josh, because they're not confrontational, if they go into a church that's like that or, or under, sit under a pastor that's like that, they will try to conform. They just kind of want to be accepted. They just kind of want to be one of the people. And so they will, but it's not genuine. So where's the virtue in doing those things if they're not doing it from their heart? They're not doing it. It's not a, Jesus, I love you too. I want to do this because I believe it pleases you. No, it's, oh, this is what these people are telling me I should do. What will they think if I don't? It's all the wrong motivations. Yeah, it's no not, one wants to be an outsider. Right. So there's that, that pressure to conform. But, but conformity is not unity. Mm-mm. But people believe that it is. And then when that person leaves that environment and they don't want to do anything anymore. They say, everybody says, oh, they fell away. No, they were, they're just being true to who they are. And one of the dangers is, is as, we're, as churches try to do this and they get some conformity, they start to look at people who won't do it as rebels. 
Mm-hmm. So people who are free thinkers become the outcasts in the church. Oh, they're not spiritual enough. Well, it could be that they're as spiritual or more than some of the conformity people, but they're being genuine about where they're at. And a lot of the people who are conforming are doing it just to be seen to be doing those things. And they're not, it's not actual spiritual development at all. The, at its worst, Josh, that pressure to conform actually cr- creates a complete facade where most of the people in the room are only doing it because is what everybody accepts, is what everybody says should be done. And it can actually create this easy double life. We just all accept that we're somewhere here, we're one person here and we're a different person at home. We're a different person at work. Well, that's terrible because in the darkness, sin grows. Hmm. We've now accepted that there's this whole life that I have to keep hidden that I don't expose to anybody at church. Well, that's a bad idea. That will mess up discipleship. That will cause all kinds of problems. And in the darkness, in the weeds, you walk into a church and where all this, all this, all the sin is packed away in the corners. But we've got the we've got the 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 beautiful veneer for everybody to see. And then what happens in addition to that? I'm I'm rabbit trailing a little here. But then what happens when a sinner walks into that who doesn't have all together have it all together, and they've not picked up on the fact that everybody is just putting it on? They think I don't belong here. Mm-hmm. I don't belong here because I'm kind of messed up. Look at how beautiful these people are dressed. Look at all, look at how well everybody behaves. We're better off just being who we are. And and why would we want anything different? Why would we want people to hinder their discipleship by being fake? Wouldn't I rather, Josh, somebody come into church and just be honest about the problems? Even if it's actual sin, wouldn't I want that? Wouldn't I rather they be honest with their brothers and sisters in Christ? Mm. Isn't that a better thing so that we can actually disciple them? We can actually show them a better way, show them scripture. And so it's, this is a deep issue. I, we're not going to cover it in one episode, but, but what, an important, what an important concept that we, that we really need to, to drill down into. But the, Josh, one of the biggest problems is Baptists don't teach individual soul liberty. You hear people say, we're independent Baptists. I'm afraid there are too many preachers who, when they say we're independent Baptists, what they mean is I'm an independent Baptist, but not my people. They do what they're told. They don't allow their congregation to be an independent Baptist. And sometimes congregations as groups develop that culture where they're independent Baptist, but nobody in the congregation is allowed to actually be independent. You have to fit in with the culture. Uh, I I had a a Baptist pastor, Josh, tell me this week, he's a new pastor. He's a pastor of a Baptist church. And he told me that he did a, a series on the distinctives and he had never even heard individual soul liberty taught. He couldn't have defined it for you. And he's pastoring a Baptist church. That's, that's, that's unacceptable yep. for us not to know this stuff, which sort of we're, we're already in this, but you're, you're seeing here the primary source of this control today is not kings. It was when all the old school writings were written. It was kings and state churches. Today, that control is not being, is not being promoted by kings or, 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 or popes. It's, it's pastors. Pastors in a lot of churches have taken the role of the Holy Spirit to people's conscience. Uh, and like we've said before, sometimes the whole church takes on that coercive culture from the pastor. Yep. I think when it comes to spiritual leaders, those in leadership, we have to remember that our goal is to guide people into a deeper, more committed relationship with God, into sanctification, not to dictate their sanctification, not to mm-hmm. try and make it look like this is the timeline you're supposed to be on. No, we're just guiding you. A shepherd takes sheep to pasture. He does not force a sheep to eat. 
And I think we have to be careful that we're not like grabbing sheep by the neck and like forcing their face down in the pasture and being like, I know how good this is right here. So you need to take it because ultimately our good shepherd doesn't do that to us. Mm. And I think what the apostle Paul says in second Corinthians is great. He said, uh, second Corinthians one twenty four, not for that. We have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy for by faith ye stand. How, what, how beautiful to read the apostle Paul, That's amazing. the guy responsible for what half the new Testament to, to look at the Corinthian believers that frankly, if any church in the New Testament should have had someone telling them what to do, it should have been the church at Corinth. But he says to them, yeah, we don't have dominion over your faith. Instead, we are helpers of your joy. Yeah, Paul, Paul literally could have been like, listen, you brats. Yeah, you guys, are, you guys are such a mess. Just you, do you, what I'm you're telling so you. You're so full of <laughs> sin and wickedness. I am the apostle. Yeah. Get it together. Do ex- I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it. <laughs> no, he's, he said they did what they did not to have dominion over the face, but to be helpers of their joy. That should freeze us in our tracks because it should cause us to look at why we minister to people and ask the question, am I trying to make many me's or am I trying to push people closer in their walk with Jesus and help their joy. And where's joy come from? It comes from their relationship with Christ. Yep. How, c- Josh, how about we put some of that into, into some job descriptions, into ministry position, job yeah. descriptions. Helper, helper, be a helper. Helper of, of people's joy. Helper of, the, of Christ's body's joy. Helper of our believers, our congregation's joy. Wow. And then Peter, he, he was talking about elders in 1 Peter 5, and he says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. That by itself, being in samples to the flock. Now there's a potential caveat there because sometimes I think we, we look at this being, being in sample, being an example to the flock, right? And we think to ourselves, well, then the way that I'm doing it, the Christian life is how they need to do it. Mm-hmm. And what we may unintentionally do is in our quest to be an example to the flock, we begin to lord that example over God's heritage. I don't know, man. There's no instance in the scripture that I can see that gives a pastor the level of authority over the flock that leads him to telling people what they can and can't do, where they can and cannot go, what they can and cannot watch, you know, yeah, et cetera. Josh, that's, that's a good question. Why do why do um, spiritual leaders um, get the idea that they can do that? I, I think it's a misreading of scripture. You've probably heard people, you know, as opposed to going to First Peter 5 as you have just now or, or First Corinthians, the way Paul talks about himself or First Timothy 3 even where it talks about the demeanor and the ministry of an elder or a deacon as, as, a, as, a, as, a, you know, as it pertains to their relationship to the church. They often go to like Moses or Elijah or one of those people who had very unique ministries that does not, is not a one-to-one comparison to a New Testament church pastor. It's, it's just not. And you'll even hear them refer to David's words about King Saul when they say, touch not God's anointed. In other words, this is, this is how I, I can tell you whatever I want and you're going to do it. And you, and you can't say it ever 
you're wrong. You can't ever say, I disagree. And if you do, you're touching God's anointed and you are, you are harming the man of God. You're harming the church by attacking the man of God. This whole construction of this man of God, um, I, I don't have a problem with the term man of God. Paul was a man of God. Stephen was a man of God. I have no problem with the terminology, but there's this, there's this weird growth of, of a mentality around sometimes that, that thought process where we say he's untouchable, he's unaccountable. He can say whatever he wants, he can do whatever he wants. And so we accept this double standard, something I would never accept from another man in our church in terms of behavior and in terms of lording over, I accept from our pastor. Why? Why, why would you? And, and why, is he, why is he allowed to lord over people in a way nobody else would ever be able to? I mean, I've seen men do things for a pastor they would never do. There were, if any other man tried to tell them something like that, anyone, they would say, why don't you say please? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They wouldn't let the president of the United States talk to them that way. Um, and so there's this weird, invis- this weird cloak that goes around people who, who believe this. It's a misreading of scripture. It just is. You, you don't see the, that kind of demeanor described. Uh, you don't see Saul's demeanor described as New Testament pastors uh, are instructed in the New Testament. And I think it's dangerous to take uh, some verse that says, where David said, I'm not going to touch the king that God has put over Israel and try to apply that to a Baptist pastor. Or, or, you know, hell opens up and swallows Korah's rebellion in Exodus. And we're going to say, oh, my church is just like Exodus. I'm Moses. Oh, that's real dangerous. Yeah. That's real dangerous. You know, uh, Moses was coming out of the, out of the, out of the mountain, Josh, with, with tablets written of stone that God himself wrote on and, and saying, I am bringing to you the word of God. I, a, a buddy of mine was preaching one time and he said, Moses's face was glowing. And God did that for him so that the people of Israel would know that he had been with God. And he said, and he told his congregation, his buddy of mine, he says, if I don't come out of the mountain with my face glowing, you better read your Bible and you better check what I say yeah. with the Holy Spirit and what he tells you. Wow, that's powerful. That's powerful. And that's the kind of stuff that, that's really the mentality a pastor should have is I'm accountable to God's word. And you're, more than you're accountable to me, you're accountable to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yes, we function in this church and we disciple one another, but the pastor is just one, is just an elder. Um, and so we've, we've got to knock down this one man over the congregation. Uh, I tell you what to do. You do it. No questions asked because I'm the pastor. Now that's a, that's a unbiblical model for pastors. And I, anybody who wants, if there's anybody out there, you disagree, you think I'm, I'm not seeing something, please send me a message, send me an email, send us an email, reach out to me because this is a, it's a dangerous idea. Um, and it's not healthy for the pastor either. It's not healthy for him. He, all of a sudden, he's not, he's not being discipled. Mm-hmm. He's above the congregation. He's not one. Of, he's also a sheep. He's also part of the body. And so what this comes down to is uh, that, that misreading of the Bible leads to another misreading of the Bible. And we'll talk about that too for just a moment. The Bible motivates behavior by love. Uh, you can look all over the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. It motivates behavior by love. Uh, Jesus actually says the whole law is two things. It boils down to two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you don't motivate your congregation by, do you love Jesus? I mean, look at Jesus, look at how many times he says this, Josh. He says, Peter, do you love me? That's how he wants, mo- that's how he puts Peter back in the ministry. Uh, and so J- Jesus motiv- motivates always with love for, for God. And so do the apostles. When you, 
depart from that and you are motivating behavior by do you love by something other than do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Don't you want to follow Christ? When you're motivating any other way, you're likely going to violate individual soul liberty because you're you'll have to use a human tactic, a human mechanism, and there's a bunch of them. There is, I mean, if we could just talk about those for a few minutes, Josh. Some of you have seen this in churches. Um, and these are not, I'm not belittling these people. They're sinners. They make mistakes, right? Churches can engage in this stuff, not meaning to sometimes, but they do. And it, you just got to be careful that there's not a culture of this. And when it does happen, it gets called out and it right. says, hey, let's not do that. Let's not motivate that way. And one of them is shame. And maybe you've seen this, Josh. I've seen shame as a major motivator. You know, you don't fit in with the church. Maybe even um, sly comments, insinuations will be made about people who don't do this. You know, I won't say outright it's sin, but you know, it just says something about your heart if you aren't willing to do what these other people are doing. Or, uh, you know, it says something about your heart if you're not, uh, if you're not doing uh, these, if you're not following these precepts in this particular area of your life the way we are. You don't have the, if I could just point it out, you don't have the right standards like we do. Mm-hmm. And so shame is used. And by the way, here's another myth we can knock down. This myth of what a biblical standard is. Maybe this should be a future episode. Maybe I should leave this alone for now. There's so many cans of worms in this episode, Josh. But this idea of standards, uh, there's biblical commands. And then there are things that are not biblical commands. And those are the only two categories. And if if it's not a biblical command, then it's, if you believe in it, that's your freedom of conscience at work. And that is your personal standard as you follow the Holy Spirit. But to impose something on another person that's a standard of yours that's not a command of scripture is violating and destroying their soul liberty. Um, so shame, that's a big one. A public humi- humiliation, that kind of, there's some overlap there. Ostracizing. You'll even see people start to pull away in friendship from somebody who behaves, who acts a little differently or believes a little differently or who's exercising soul liberty. There's no scriptural command to withdraw from somebody unless they're in open sin, unless they're a testimony problem and they won't repent. There's no biblical instruction to withdraw. It's wrong and it's violating soul liberty. There's even threats of isolation if you, if you don't conform. Hey, you don't realize how you're shaming the church. You don't realize how you're, you're going to lose friends. I've even seen people get told, I've, I've known of situations where people got told, how are you going to find a godly spouse acting like this? Uh, that's, that's a manipulation tactic. Mm-hmm. You're going to lose everything. Your family will be ashamed of you. It, and so if you, and if you stand against it, you'll get called out. You'll get isolated. You'll get uh, ostracized. And because nobody else stands up against it, you'll think, man, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm the, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm just a rebel because everybody else is following. He must be right. I'm the only one who has a problem with this, but it's not, it's not, it's often not the case by the way. Um, because uh, very few people want to be the one to get put on blast. They don't want to be the oddball. So um, they, just, they just stay silent uh, and they go along with it because it, it confuses them. You know, they're not really sure what to do. But in, in doing so, everyone in the church becomes complicit in that culture of coercion, that shame, that um, they're the audience, you know, to the spectacle. And so without accountability, this becomes a huge problem. We've got, we've got to check each other as believers in Christ. I don't want to see anybody in my church motivating by shame and, and ostracizing and humiliation and, and all that stuff. I don't want to see that. And I don't want to do that. So if I ever do it, I hope somebody in my church comes up to me and says, hey, man, you're, you didn't really motivate that Sunday school lesson with love for God. 
uh, how, how loving would that be for somebody to come up to me after a lesson and say, Hey man, you motivated that a lot with shame and threats and God's going to be, God's going to, you know, blast you if you don't tithe, you know, God's going to blow your tire out if you don't give enough money yeah. to the missions program. That's not really motivating by love for God. That's motivating by guilt and shame. That's a loving thing. If somebody were to call me out on that, I don't want to be part of that culture. I don't want to uh, uh, help others be a part of that culture. But why? Because people will do it. They will conform, but not because, is it because their conscience tells them so? Is it because the Holy Spirit's telling them so? Is it because the word of God's telling them so? No. Most of the time, not. Um, they've just, they've just accepted that other people, it's other people's job to, to push conformity. And they say, okay, well, I'll just conform. But, but again, they're a hypocrite because they don't believe it. Mm. They're doing it because somebody else told them to. I came across a couple of social media posts today on this topic and I wanted to share them with you. What do you think? Go for it. First is uh, a guy on Twitter named Pastor Chris Tice. I don't know if you've ever seen his stuff. He's yep. got great stuff. He wrote this. It's a quote by, he shared a quote by Brian Chapel who said this. Is it more wrong to allow what God prohibits or to prohibit what God allows? Both alternatives are equally wrong. Either alternative would give me, would put me in the position of the lawgiver. God allows only himself the prerogative to determine holy standards. That's a great, a great quote. Here, here's one that I posted five years ago today. It says, if, if the presence of a spiritual leader causes significant changes in your behavior and life, you're either living as a practical atheist, unbelieving of God's daily interest in your life, or you're living in idolatry conforming your life to the premonitions of a man whose beliefs you don't believe are from God. That's the only two options. If I'm doing something just because somebody's telling me I have to do it, but then when I'm in my private time, I do something completely different. I either believe that God's not interested in my private time. Like I do believe these things are from God, but that God's not watching. I'm living as a practical atheist. I'm living a double life or I'm only conforming because I'm around that spiritual leader and I don't believe it's from God. So again, this goes back to, it makes you a hypocrite. The, the point is though, it's, this is not changing minds with God's word. This is not, this is manipulation. It's not love God, love neighbor. This is conform or else. So most people, because they don't want that, they don't like confrontation, they conform, uh, but they don't really believe it. So again, it makes them hypocrites who do things to please a man. And because oftentimes they fear ostr ostracizing, they don't want to be kicked out or, or asked to be asked to leave or, or treated like they have to leave, you know? Will I lose my friends? Mm. People feel this. I've felt this in the past. Will I lose my friends if I, if I um, exercise certain freedoms or if I do things differently? And that pressure and that manipulation, the pastor will, in those, in those environments, you'll think that's the Holy Spirit keeping you on the right path. You'll learn to believe that. Um, and, but it's not. It's often not. Mm. Um, and you'll have environments too that, uh, that'll, for, that'll reinforce that culture by rewarding and publicly praising those who conform. You know, you, you've probably experienced these environments, right? Where you've got all these weird check boxes that need to get checked. And then when you check them, somebody's there to reward you. Oh, I have brother so-and-so. He was here for 18 hours yesterday giving out 1,400 tracks. And so that's, that's lifted up. And I'm not saying there's not a place sometimes to reward people and praise them. Man, we got to be careful with how we do that because we can create this reward punishment culture where if somebody's not doing it, they're getting the rod. And then the people who do it, we lift them up and we puff them up and we praise them. 
when they could be being a total hypocrite and just doing it because they're doing it for that praise mm. and for that environment to, to, to reward them. I think I, like I'm, I'm just kind of sitting here listening and just jogging my memory. I, can, I think I can say pretty confidently, I only ever got close to a situation like what you're discussing here once in my whole life. Now, whether it really was or not, or was it something that I perceived, I don't know. But I, I guess I'm just, I'm listening and I'm thinking this, I, this is hard to, to fathom. And I'm just like, I'm honestly trying to ponder this. I just don't remember an environment like that. Or if it was there, I was just blind to it or I didn't, it didn't impact me. But like, I'm just listening and I'm just thinking to myself, how is this even possible? Uh, it just, that doesn't. Well, I'm going to take a second and just go there for a second. It doesn't add up. If we can. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't fit with our beliefs, Josh. It doesn't fit with Baptist belief. But when you're not teaching individual soul liberty, you know, there's that marriage between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. In other words, there's a marriage between what you're, what you're believing and teaching and what you're doing. And so when you're not teaching individual soul liberty and then you're employing a man of God, everybody just does what they're told. And then you have that sort of comparison culture that creeps in. And, I, and I'll readily agree that I've experienced, I think, more on the extreme end of some of these things. I, I completely acknowledge that. What I'm describing in this episode so far is sometimes what is sort of the worst, oftentimes the worst case scenario, you know, where sin's hiding in the, in the shadows because people are hypocrites and hiding things. And there's that, that, that visualized culture where we're always, when we walk in, we're, we're always sizing people up and all that kind of stuff. That, that is, that's real. That's out there. But I think, Josh, it's also true that people exist, churches exist on a spectrum. So some churches are very healthy in this regard. Some churches are very, very unhealthy in this regard. But most churches are on that spectrum somewhere. And that has the, ten I believe that this, this mentality has the, has the ability to creep into any church, where at some level, there are probably those who, who, who tend to feel this way. They're just the more extroverted type. And they're just like, hey, I'm going to, you know, this person needs to grow spiritually and I'm just going to show them how to do it. And they're going to, they need to do what I'm telling them. There's always those types of people in church, but they're balanced usually by the other people, the more gracious types, the more, the type that remind them, hey, you got to give people time and all that stuff. That's important. But churches can veer on this. And I think it comes from a good desire, but it can end in a very bad place. And, and of course, we're taught, we often talk about the extremes when we're, when we're teaching doctrine, but, but it's important to say that I think people where this starts at is with desiring to see people live holy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it starts in that good place. The problem is external activities can't be the, the standard of holiness. You, you can't, and you, do, and you certainly don't get to decide what's holy when it's not clear in scripture and then impose that on people. You know, we preach the word. First Timothy 4, preach the word and not preach your opinions, not preach your ideas, not preach the word plus tell everybody what you do because it works better than what they do. No, preach the word. And then you trust the spirit of God to apply the word. You can give examples of applying it, but you got to be real careful with that and, and, and not treat that like, you can't, you can't treat it like you're the spirit of God. Like that third part of the Trinity that we act like doesn't exist sometimes when we're, when we're discipling people, we got to trust God to lead his children. You know, you mentioned it before. You're like the past ministry leaders are like sheepdogs, right? We're the under shepherd. We're not the shepherd. We're under the shepherd. We're sort of a guide, but, but we don't, we don't hold the rod and the staff. You know, uh, we don't guard the gate. I mean, we might, we help the shepherd guard the gate. We might help the, we might help the, the, the shepherd guide the sheep, but 
but we're not the one. We preach and teach the word and we model discipleship as an example to the flock. First Peter 5, you mentioned it. We don't lord over God's heritage. Have you ever heard, I've just thought of churches who say, you ever heard churches say, and maybe they don't mean anything bad by this. I'm not impugning anybody's intentions, but let's just take our church, for example, Fellowship Baptist Church of Panama City, Florida. Have you ever heard of churches getting such a system to the way they do things? You'll hear people say, yeah, but that's not the fellowship way. Yeah, we do things the fellowship way here. You gotta be careful with that mentality. My goal is not to make people more like fellowship. My, my goal is to make people more like Jesus. And that's something I really love and appreciate about our pastor is he, makes, he has made it so clear so many times. If you come here to this church, we, we'd be so glad to have you. But at the same time, we want you to get closer to Jesus because you were here, not closer yes. to, to fellowship's way. And, you know, it's, I think, to be fair with what you said earlier, I think a lot of pastors that find themselves in this ultimate authority kind of game, I think they do start off in a good place. You know, they want people to get closer to Jesus and grow in sanctification. There may even be some like frustration there, mm-hmm. you know, that why aren't these people coming along faster or, or why isn't their sanctification? Why, why isn't it moving along faster? But it's like we've been talking about. You cannot force someone into a deeper commitment to Christ. You cannot manipulate someone's decision to make them a better follower of Jesus. And if you think you can, like you've been saying, and as you quoted earlier, you're making people hypocrites and not disciples because they're not, they're acting out of obligation. Yeah, Josh, there, you, you start to think, okay, well, how can I get this person sanctified? And that has driven a lot of these cultures that get unhealthy. How can we get people sanctified quicker? How can we automate this? And I think a lot of preachers today grew up in cultures that taught them, this is how you sanctify people. They gave them a rubric. They gave them a, a, a recipe. Here, this is how you do it. First, they do this. Then they do this. We start with the haircut. Then we go to the clothes. Then we go to this. Then we go to the music. And so there's this, there's this rubric. Ah, we'll make spiritual. We'll make our little spiritual people. And look, all my church is spiritual. They're just doing what you told them. They don't have it. They're not listening to the Holy Spirit. There's that, they've not, you've not fostered that relationship with Jesus more. I think some people are so convinced that this is the way, to quote the Mandalorian. <laughs> this is the way. You have to do it this way. But that way's not in the Bible. It's okay, and it might even be okay if you like that way, but to but to bring people into salve, into us into a relationship with Christ, and then immediately, once they're saved, say, "All right, here's the system," and it's not about getting closer to Christ. It's not about under, knowing Christ more. And Josh, I'll be honest with you, my understanding on on sanctification and on individual soul liberty has created more growth in me in the last five to ten years of my life, far more than I ever experienced before. It was the loosening of those expectations in my life that actually enabled true organic growth in my life. And yeah, so, so what you're saying is absolutely true that somebody along the line decided, hey, I've got this system, this will work. Like you were saying before, you don't see that growth fast enough and you think, man, how can I get these people to do it? I tell you what, there's some stuff that I do that really helps me in my spiritual life. And I know it doesn't say it in the, in the Bible, but this is what people need to do because it works. So it's pragmatism. But it, but it circumvents the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit entirely. Now you don't need him. Yeah, that statement should have ended at, I know it's not in the Bible. <laughs> well, I'll just shut up then. That's like, <laughs> like it, it, if you have things that like have helped you in your spiritual growth, feel free to share those with others. 
Sure. I mean, that's what books are essentially. Yeah. Feel free to share those ideas. But leave it at that. Yeah. Don't lord those over people. Mm-hmm. You got to do it this way. Yeah. Absolutely. There, there is only one Lord and he is Jesus and any church or individual that seeks to add to the hierarchy of the Christian life is wrong. And each believer, believer is individually responsible and accountable to God directly. Wow, Josh. Some heavy stuff. <laughs> you just kind of go through all this and you, you look at the Baptist distinctives, you read the acrostic and you're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Man, you gotta, you start digging into this stuff and you, there's, there's some intentionality. There's some weight that's, that's there behind all that. Some, some real, real problems that have occurred in the past. Oh yeah. And I think most of our listeners, Josh, I think most of our listeners have at some level, maybe not drastic, but some may be drastic, have experienced this. Even if it's informal, like you have the formal structures that sometimes domineer, uh, have dominion over people's faith. But I think there's a lot of people who they've just experienced that sort of informal pressure. They know what it's like to go to a church and feel like they have to put on a show. That's a problem. And you can say that that's their fault. They should know better. No, we have grace on people. You don't get to tell people that. They know how they feel when they go into a church. Mm -hmm. And it is the church's job to create a better culture than that. We have to. We're reaching sinners. Jesus didn't create that culture. What was the standards? Let me ask you this, Josh. What was the standards to be in Jesus's presence? Mm. Man, should that shape our church? That's good. Mm. Josh, love Jesus and do what you do because you love Jesus. Amen. Absolutely. That should be the, the motivating factor for everything that we do. Amen. Well, our next episode in two weeks yeah, is our interview with Pastor Josh Tice. Yeah, we're going to have Pastor Josh come on and correct everything we just said. Yeah, so... <laughs> he'll straighten us out. He'll, he'll correct. He'll Help correct us, Josh. Us there. Yeah, he'll, he'll do all that for us. Uh, then we have Save Membership. Followed by two offices. Should we tell them? Let's do it. Tell them, Josh. Okay. And then following two offices, we have the interview that, frankly, I love all of our other guests, but this is the interview that I am the most excited about. We will, after two offices, we have an interview with Jared Wilson that will be going live on the podcast discussing pastoral ministry. Yes. And and, and the future. And man, it's... I don't know. I tweeted this year a couple names of people that I thought if I could have coffee with anyone this year, who would it be? And one of the names I tweeted with Jared was Jared Wilson, and I'm counting this interview as one of the It's virtual coffee, coffee man. Coffee that's, meetings. That's it. <laughs> so we are super oh, excited a, about that. What a great guy, man. What a guy who cares about pastors and cares about pastoral ministry. If you haven't listened to his um podcast, The Art of Pastoring. I love that podcast. If you haven't read any of his books, buy any of them. Mm-hmm. Great, I, great author and uh, has helped. If you are in ministry, so much. start off with gospel-centered church. And then I have not read yet gospel-centered ministry, but it's next on my list. Every Christian out there should read The Imperfect Disciple. Yeah, it's an excellent book. Yep. And the, the Gospel According to Satan was another great book. Mm. I've kind of fangirled on Jared's stuff this year. <laughs> well, Man, that's some exciting stuff coming up, Josh. I know, it's crazy. All, Y'all be all ready for that. Baptist podcast. Do you, listeners, do you have thoughts about anything we've talked about? Send us your, your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, we really enjoyed that after the 
the two ordinances episode, uh, just sharing opinions with one another and different people on Twitter. We really yeah. appreciate you guys and your feedback. Well, Clyde, what do you think, man? Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Kanye would agree. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Young Baptist Pod. And check out our website at theyoungbaptistpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you consume the content. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Young Baptist Podcast. Podcast.